Good morning, everybody. Um, one of the interesting things about the internet is its ability to, to create new words, phrases that were before, you know, uh, English language is constantly changing and it would take maybe 50 years for something to be widely introduced into our culture. But on the internet, someone can coin a phrase and then it becomes something that people, if, it, if it's sticky enough, if it works and people can identify with, oh, I, I totally get what they're saying, what that word describes. It can spread like wildfire within a very short amount of time. So about 13 years ago, someone came up with a phrase or a word. It's two words together kind of put into one word, and it's the word humble brag. So nod your head if you've heard humble brag before. You know what a humble brag is? A few of you. So humble brag is uh, a word. Here's the, the, the definition of a humble brag. A humble brag is a statement in which you pretend to be modest, but which you are really using as a way of telling people about your success or achievements. So that's what a humble brag is. So a humble brag would be like complaining about just how popular you are or attractive you are, you know, uh, just how amazing your life is. You know, it's like one of the really tough things about going on a vacation to Fiji is, you know, how sweaty I get or something, you know. That'd be an example of a, of a humble brag. There's a wonderful article that a Christian blogger wrote um, called The Art and Science of the Humble Brag. And it's a tongue-in-cheek, kind of humorous look at how to, how to include this. And the reason why humble brags are, are so, that this is a thing that people experience, it's largely a social media phenomenon. It's, it's something that social media has enabled people to just put their lives out there for everybody. And there's a lot of people, it turns out, that want to brag about how amazing their life is. And, but they want to do it and not in a very obvious way. So the humble brag is, has become a thing. And I was kind of shocked that it had been more than 10 years since this phrase was coined, but it turned out 2010, someone came up with this term uh, or this word to describe this phenomenon that many people have seen. So here's an example of, of a few humble brags. Here's one. It says, when I bought this Ferrari, no one warned me I'd get pulled over all the time. <laughs> Just so humble, you know, it's like, or I, you know, I want to brag about my Ferrari, but I, I'm going to complain, you know, and, and kind of couch my bragging in a complaint. Uh, you, can, uh, you can brag about your opportunities, right? So what, an example of this is, my fingers are aching from typing my memoir all day. Okay, cool. Someone, you're writing a memoir. Good for you. Um, you can uh, make sure they know how popular or, or uh, you know, famous you are and, and so, or, or the famous people that you're in proximity with. So this one is an example. Bumped into my dear friend Tom Hanks at the Academy Awards tonight. He's awesome. So it's like, you know, you're bragging about knowing Tom Hanks. You can remind people that you're popular, right? So he says, the humble brag is an ideal medium for quietly telling others about your popularity. Here's, here's one. Preached the worst sermon of my life, but still got a sore hand from signing all those Bibles afterward. Now, now I've got this. This requires a little explanation. If you're kind of new to church and you weren't attending a church in the 1980s, you know, this was a thing. People signed Bibles. I remember walking up to, uh, after, after church, a guest speaker would come to the church I grew up in, and I'd hand them my Bible, and they'd sign the Bible, like, at the, like they wrote it, you know, at the, at the, or it was a yearbook or something, you know, so maybe one of the blank pages at the beginning was just full of signatures. I've still got my childhood Bible that had the signatures of the different pastors that came and, and spoke at my church. Kind of weird. Please don't ask me to do that. I will not sign your Bible. Um, uh, another example of this, there's some advanced techniques actually that Tim Challies goes on to offer here. He says that if you've mastered the basics of the humble brag, you're ready to move on to the advanced techniques. So here's, here's one. Does anyone know if you can claim a yacht as a home office? Anyone know? <laughs> Just asking for advice here, you know. 
You can hide it in a question, the humble brag. He said, try hiding your accomplishment in the form of a question. Is anyone else going to be at the White House tonight? It would be great to meet up. Okay. Or, uh, yeah, that was the, the yacht one was the other example there. Uh, th- there's also a very common one is to complain, you know, to, be, to, to brag about something amazing, but using it as a complaint. You know, it says, I tried shopping on Amazon, and they recommended my own book to me. Fail. How embarrassing. How, you know. Or I hate it when you get profiled on 60 Minutes and they mispronounce your name. That's a, that's a good one. So this is this idea of the humble brag, right? This is the, the internet phenomenon. This is a phrase or a word that's become popular. And it reminds us of, I think it's a good intro to what we're talking about this morning, which one of the things we'll be addressing in the story of Jesus and the person that Jesus meets today is the idea, the importance of humility. You know, that humility is, that these are really not good examples of humility. These are false humility. This is the humble brag. This is trying to tell everyone how amazing you are. It's all about self-promotion, and it is not at all in any way what biblical humility looks at looks like. We'll be looking at uh, three little sections of a story, all in Luke 14. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. Luke 14 will be there in just a few moments. We're in this series, Meeting Jesus. This is going to take us through Easter. So Easter Sunday, we'll be meeting the risen Jesus. That'll be our final week of this series. But each week, we're looking at an interaction, an encounter, where Jesus, uh, his life interacts with somebody else's life. And then the stories that come from that tell us so much about the mission of Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, the difference that Jesus makes in people's lives. So each week we're looking at a different encounter. And today we come to Luke chapter 14, where Jesus is at a meal with an unnamed Pharisee, this religious leader, and he's at this meal with this person. Again, we're not given the name, but we're given all of this, all of this insight into the mission of Jesus, the way Jesus thinks about the world, the way Jesus thinks about his mission, you know, what he's there to do, um, and his, we'll, we'll learn about compassion, we're going to learn about generosity, and we'll learn about humility from Jesus in this story. So we'll look at it in three sections. We'll start with verses one through six, and we'll stop and talk about what we see um, in there. So Luke chapter 14, verses one through six. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Quick note about the text if what, depending on what translation you were reading, and there's a uh, little note at the bottom of my Bible, it says some manuscripts say a donkey, so it's either a son or a donkey. There's older manuscripts that say one or the other, and I'm not going to make any comments about how, how interchangeable those could be, but um, some of the manuscripts say son, some of them say donkey, and so there's a note in my text that says that. Anyway, you can arrive at your own conclusions with that, but... So there's, here's the situation, right? There, and, and actually, before I say that, there, there's a very common icebreaker type question. When you're getting to know somebody new or you're in some kind of group um, or, or even podcast or something like that, this is a common question where someone will say, if you could have anyone over to dinner, 
from history or current day? You know, who would, who would be on your list? And you get, inevitably, someone's going to say Albert Einstein. I want Albert Einstein over to dinner. Anyone from, from historical times or today, if you could have like a dream dinner, who, who would it be? And people come up with their list of people. It doesn't take long before typically Jesus ends up on those lists. But, it, you know, usually it is someone like Albert Einstein as well, or, you know, different, different people will be included. But then, ten, commonly, Jesus shows up on these lists when people make these dream dinner party lists. And if someone's feeling a little self-conscious about mentioning Jesus appearing over spiritual or something, they might then quickly follow up with a joke about how, you know, Jesus could bring the wine because he just need water, you know, he could turn it into wine, something like that. But, Jesus tends to show up on these, on these lists of like dream dinner uh, occasions. And I think that's a great answer and definitely would be number one on, on my list because when Jesus showed up to a meal, which he did often in scriptures, we have him at these meals regularly, and a meal with Jesus would have been pretty amazing because Jesus obviously shared the table and even just that was symbolic during that ancient culture. You're identifying with the people that you are meeting with, you're, you're looking eye to eye over a table, sharing a meal. There's something about breaking bread that is a way of connecting with somebody, and Jesus would do that, and he would eat meals with people that, you know, that sinners and tax collectors. He was criticized for who he would break bread with. But he'd also, typically this would be a time for an extended conversation. Ask Jesus your questions. Here's some teaching from him. But also your likelihood of seeing a miracle at a meal with Jesus, is going to be pretty high as well. So great person to put on your list of people that you would want to have a meal with if you had the opportunity to. This, this meal here, there's a, there is a, the, the meal turns out to be more than a meal. It's an invitation to a meal with the leader of the Pharisees, which is interesting because Jesus would eat with anybody. Right? He eats with the sinners and tax collectors, but here he is meeting with someone who was widely considered to be very holy in this culture. He was a ruler of the Pharisees. But this meal seemed to have a secret purpose. It was a sting operation to see if Jesus would break the Sabbath rules, um, not God's rules, but man's rules. And we'll talk about the distinction there in a moment. To see, once again, is Jesus going to bend the rules the way he typically does uh, when it comes to these Sabbath rules? And there's a man in front of him placed in a you know, place where Jesus can obviously see him, and it says that they were watching him carefully because it was the Sabbath. And there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, this is an older medical term that we don't, uh, there's, uh, it's probably edema now, which is uh, a collection of fluids in his tissues. It could have been caused by a, a number of things, but one of the things that commonly causes this is kidney malfunction or congestive heart failure. But that term, so he would have been, a, a, it would have been obvious that he had this fluid retention in his limbs or maybe his face or his body. This was someone who's clearly ill and he's placed in front of Jesus. That term dropsy is just an interesting one to me. And I, I, I think of it sometimes when I have trouble holding on to my car keys or something or my, my water bottle. It's like, I got a real bad case of dropsy today, you know. I, dry, I was helping one of my kids with their hair today, fixing their hair for church, as you do, and I dropped the hairbrush, and I, I told them that I, I had dropsy, and he just got a blank look on his face, like, I don't get it, it's not funny. Uh, similar to the looks that I'm seeing around the room, no, <laughs> just kidding. But it's the Sabbath day, right? So this all takes place on the Sabbath. 
And the Sabbath is a wonderful concept, right, given to us in, in the Scriptures. And it's this idea that one day in seven is set aside for rest, for renewal, for relationship with God, for relationship with other people. That in God's design, the way he created humanity to work best is not a 24-7 rhythm. It's a 24-6 rhythm with a break. Right, that you take we that this is a gift that he gave to the Old Testament people that to tell them that they were not slaves anymore. They were led out of slavery in Egypt and they were given his Ten Commandments, and one of those Ten Commandments is about keeping the Sabbath. That one day in seven you are to rest. Slaves do not get days off. You are no longer slaves. You are my children. You get to take a break. Um And it was meant to be this gift, right? Meant to be this incredible blessing to them. And they were not to work. Not even the animals that they owned were to work on the Sabbath day. And it would start from, you know, sundown on one day to sundown on the next day. This 24-hour period of time for rest. Even during harvest time, even during the busiest time of the year, they were meant to rest. And... By the way, I should say that, that this is, a, I think, an important practice for us. I don't think it's a command in the same way it was a command for ancient Israel because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We've entered into our rest through our relationship with him. But I do think it's very wise to do this. And I think it's a gift to practice this Sabbath rhythm in your life that our world, the pace of our life is wild and out of control. And I think practicing some sort of Sabbath renewal time is a very helpful thing to do, even though it's countercultural in our culture to do this. And I highly recommend it. This is something that my family and I have practiced consistently for probably 15 plus years. We've taken a day every week where it's our rest day. And it's really, really important. We call it family day in my house, but it's our our Sabbath. It's our time of, of resting and recharging so that we can serve God um, and carry on our regular everyday um, duties in life be those other six days. And it turns out you can get a lot done in six days. That if you have that day of rest, you can, you can get a, it's this similar principle to like when you know you're going on vacation and you got a break coming up and you have the most productive week of your life before vacation to get everything ready for vacation. It's a similar kind of concept. I encourage you to consider it if you're not currently practicing Uh, a time of Sabbath rest, whether it's Sunday or whether it's a different day. I think it is a gift, and I think it's um, part of how God has designed us to have this rhythm of of rest and work. And so I encourage you, and if you want more on that, you can go to our website and look up a series from 2018 called 24-6. There was a three-week series that we did called 24-6, The Rest of God, and where I go into a deep dive on that. But the, this idea of abstaining from work, um, you know, that, that there's this work and, and rest rhythm that, that brings up a natural question, which is what is work? And scripture gave some guidelines about work in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and these passages where here's what work is, here's what work isn't, don't do these things on your one day of rest. But the leaders, the, Jew, the religious leaders of Israel needed more um, they, they wanted to get a little more granular, a little more specific about what is work, what is not work. And so there developed this huge amount of commands around this Sabbath command. So if you want to know what work is, it's these things. And they were very, very specific about some of these rules. And so I'm going to give you some examples of some rules that have developed over the years about what, what is work and what isn't. So here's, here's one. If you threw an object in the air... 
and caught it with your other hand, it was a violation of the Sabbath. So you could catch it with the same hand. That's fine. But don't be throwing something from one hand to the other hand. That apparently is work according to some definition of that. A tailor uh, couldn't carry a needle on the Sabbath lest he would be tempted to sew something that ripped. A student couldn't carry his books because he might read. You couldn't examine anyone's clothing because you might find an insect there and kill it, and that would be work. Nothing could be bought or sold. Nothing could be washed. A letter could not be sent, even if you put it in the hand of a non-Jewish person for delivery. No fire could be lit. And that's why today, even even conservative and orthodox Jews have a time switch on their lighting systems so that lights go on automatically on the Sabbath. Cold water could be poured on warm water, but warm water couldn't be poured on cold water. You couldn't take a bath for fear water would spill onto the floor and wash the floor as it fell off of you. If, you, if there was a lit candle, you couldn't blow it out. A woman couldn't look in a, in a glass or a mirror because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out and that would be work. <laughs> Cooking in most all forms, boiling, roasting, baking, frying, etc. is forbidden on the Sabbath and in particular when the temperature is raised above 45 degrees centigrade or 113 degrees Fahrenheit. If the hot water tap is accidentally left on, it cannot be turned off on the Sabbath. Uh, Escaping gas can be turned off, but not in the normal way. One must turn off the top of a gas burner with the back of the hand or the elbow. The preparation of food is greatly affected by the Sabbath. One cannot squeeze a lemon into a glass of iced tea, but one can squeeze lemon on a piece of fish. I don't know. No explanation for that one. I don't know. One cannot light a fire on the Sabbath. That's taught in the Old Testament law. That, that is in the Old Testament law. But strict Judaism views this to prohibit to turn electric lights on or off at the Sabbath. And it can be solved with a timer, as we mentioned. Um, an air conditioner cannot be turned on by a Jew on the Sabbath, but a Gentile can be persuaded to do so. One cannot bathe with a bar of soap on the Sabbath, but liquid detergent is acceptable. So maybe because just the, to get a lather, you know, you got to rub it together and, that, and that's work. Now, I mentioned these, these examples and these details of, of the way Sabbath is observed in, you know, the, maybe the Orthodox Jewish community in Israel or in New York. There's a large Orthodox Jewish uh, population there. Not to make fun of it, although it does seem humorous. I think the heart behind these are correct. I think they, they want to obey God. We want to follow the law of God. God gave us these commandments and we want to obey him. We want to follow him because we love him. But I give these examples because they're, they, I think they show us just how these man-made rules around God's rules. So God has this, this rule that he gives to the Old Testament people, the Israelites. I want, this is how I want your nation to operate. One day in seven is your day of rest. Don't sell. Don't, don't do these, you know, the, the work. Don't work in the fields. Don't, don't work on that day. I want you to rest. And that's a gift from God. It's a blessing. It's this amazing thing. But then all of these little protective rules developed around it that became a burden, where this thing that God meant as a blessing, as a gift to his people, just became a weight. It became a, how are we ever going to follow all of these rules? There's so many rules. I, I want to make sure that I'm obeying what God wants me to do, and I'm afraid of breaking any of, the, any of the commandments. And so here's all of these protective rules around them. And these are the rules that became this constant source of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. He was constantly bumping up against these man-made rules, even though Jesus was very careful to follow the actual laws of God. He was perfect. He never sinned. But he would, he would go out of his way 
to break these artificial man-made rules that grew up around the Sabbath. And Jesus would say things like, the Sabbath was made for man, not, not man for the Sabbath. This is a gift of God. And he called himself, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And so we see Jesus in this situation where he's at this meal, minding his own business, eating, eating something, and there's a man who is suffering in front of him. And they just knew that if they put a man suffering in front of Jesus, if, they, if Jesus was in proximity to anyone going through something like this, he's going to make a difference. He's not going to leave them like that. He's going to heal them. That was Jesus' reputation. That was what Jesus did constantly. And so they set him up. Put this guy suffering. Like, think about the hard-heartedness to do this. This guy is suffering, and he is a pawn. Let's put him in front of Jesus and see what Jesus does. We want to catch him once again breaking the Sabbath rules. And it's unclear what their goal was even. Because Jesus had done this over and over again. Like up till this point in this story, there's seven different healings that Jesus has done on the Sabbath. He wasn't afraid to do this. He'd done it many times before. So what's the point now? They want to see it for themselves instead of hearing about it? I don't know. But Jesus answered an unspoken question with a question. It's interesting the way it says that, um, it says, Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. So he responded. Not, they didn't ask him a question. It was an unspoken question. There's this thing hanging in the room here. It's unclear what they're trying to achieve, but he, he just sees the setup, and it says he responded as if he was asked a question, even though he wasn't asked a question. But he responds to this unanswered or unasked question, unspoken question, with his own question. And he presents them with a dilemma. He says it this way, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He presents them with this dilemma. They, when is it okay to heal people, Pharisees and, and, and religious leaders? Tell me, when is it okay to heal people? If they answer one way, oh, it's, it's okay to heal people on the Sabbath, then they, they risk being lumped in with Jesus, being one of those lawless people that don't care about the commands of God. If they answer the other way, then they risk being considered uncompassionate. No, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Then they kind of look like uncaring people, which is what they were being in this situation. But Jesus asks them this question as if they know how to heal people, right? He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Pharisees and rulers, um, when do you guys heal people? Is it just all the time or do you take the Sabbath off from your healing, right? They couldn't heal people on any day of the week regardless of when it was. And they do something interesting, right, which is what you do when you don't know the answer to a question or you're presented. They remained silent, Right? Someone, this quote has been attributed to Lincoln, to Mark Twain, to who knows who originally said it, but it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. Right? I'd rather be silent and let, them, let him make his own conclusions here, but they're quiet in this moment. And then uh, biblical scholar, Pastor G. Campbell Morgan, uh, in his British sense of humor, he says, every now and then as I listen to the story of these men, I think they did have some lucid intervals. And this was one of them. Like, they're, they're clear in this moment that they should just be silent because they don't know how to answer his question. And Jesus uh, says to their silence, which of you having a son or an ox, and we talked about that whole thing, that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. 
After, Jesus heals him, right? He, he heals this man, delivers him from his disease, likely changes his appearance before them. The swelling goes away. This man is sent away whole and healthy. And he sends him out of the, out of the meal. Like, you, you, you can go now. doesn't want it to, he, him to be caught up in a controversy or something. He's protecting that man. And he sends him away. And then he says, if you have an animal or maybe a son caught in a pit on the Sabbath day, you will be compassionate. You will show compassion in that moment and you will immediately set to work even though it's the Sabbath day. There's a whole genre of videos on the internet of people rescuing animals from like mud or stuck in a water, you know, stuck, stuck in water somewhere and people rescuing a moose or a, you know, an elk or something like that. There's, I've seen so many of these videos come across my um, my various social media feeds, and it looks like a lot of work. You know, to rescue a struggling animal that's trying to fight for its life and it's trying to attack the person who's trying to help them. And right, this is an incredible amount of work. But Jesus says that in the name of compassion, you will do that work on the Sabbath because it's an emergency. Someone is in need. And it's the same situation. This man is in need. I'm not breaking God's law by carrying out this healing. Jesus shows incredible compassion, obviously shows incredible power. This is Jesus. He's the healer. He delivers this man from his affliction and he sends him away. Let's look at the next snapshot from this meal. We're going to read verses 7 through 11. Jesus tells a parable to the people gathered at this meal. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The point of this next section of this account of this meal is that humility is the right thing to do, but it's not only right, it's also wise. It's wiser to act with humility than it is to be a self-promoting kind of person because those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. The situation at the meal likely is exactly what Jesus described. When you come to a gathering like this, don't sit in the place of honor that in this culture, this the the... The host of the meal would sit in the middle of the table and the tables would be in like a U shape and the lowest priority person, you would be seated in order of importance at these meals. And so the person who is hosting would be the most important person as the host of the meal and then the honored guests would be seated closest to the hosts and then the further away you got around these tables would indicate your place of honor, your place of priority in at least at that meal. And so he says it, it is... It is embarrassing. I want to save you some embarrassment, Jesus says. Don't sit in the best seat when you show up at an event like this um, because you might be asked to move. I want you to sit in a lower seat and then maybe you'll be elevated. Maybe they'll, they'll ask you to come and sit in a place of priority, but it's a wiser thing to do to just go sit at the more humble location and then if you are elevated, 
that is great, but, but it's very shameful, very embarrassing to be asked to move for someone who's more important. And then the only seats open will be the ones at the end of the table. There, there is this fundamental human drive, I think, behind that humble brag thing we talked about at the beginning of the service, which is to, to seek honor and avoid shame. This is part of just as humans, we want to avoid being shamed. We want to avoid being embarrassed. And then the, alt, the other side of that is we want to be felt, uh, we want to feel important. We want to be thought of as important. We want people to respect us, people to look up to us. And social media just kind of puts all that on, on, in front of our faces, that we want people to think that we are special, that we are important, that we are well-educated, that we are uh, wonderful people who are talented in every way and, and living these great lives, right? This is the, the there, there is that, you may not feel that need as, as much as maybe the influencers do or something, but it's there somewhere. We want people to think highly of us, right? But Jesus calls everybody to humility. Jesus introduces just how important humility is. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted, that the path to honor, it passes through humility. We don't start by trying to put ourselves out there and and talk about how amazing we are. We start with humility. James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's a really interesting scholar named John Dixon who spoke at a conference I attended a few years ago. He's an Australian academic and I believe he's a pastor as well, and he's, um, I think he teaches at Wheaton College currently, but I heard him speak at a conference a number of years ago, and he talked about um, the things he learned when he was writing his book, Humilitas. He was, he was introducing the idea of humility as a, as a virtue and as something that um, Jesus asks us to embody. Jesus certainly embodies humility himself, but he said, in the ancient world, during the time of Jesus, humility was not thought of as a virtue. It was not thought of as something anyone would want to be. Why would you humble yourself? Why would you take the lowest seat at a, at a gathering like that? You would never do that. That is not something that people did in the ancient culture. But there was this, this thing about Jesus, and specifically that Jesus died on the cross for us, this humiliating form of death, and then triumphed over it, right, and was given this uh, he's at the right hand of the Father and all this after the resurrection that, that caused this new community of people, the new Christians, the, the church, to go, how do we think about humility? This is something that we tried to avoid in our culture, but now Jesus is telling us this is something we should pursue. And the example of this is Jesus' death on the cross. And in his talk that he gave, he said, academic research found that a humility revolution took place in the middle of the first century. Not only because of Jesus' teaching, his crucifixion changed the way people understood greatness and humility. The cross of Christ was contrary to the understanding of greatness in the ancient world. The early Christians had to deal with this question, did his crucifixion mean he wasn't as great as they thought? No, they realized. If the greatest man we have ever known sacrificed his life on the cross, then greatness must consist in willing sacrifice and holding power for the good of others. He was interviewing a researcher, and he said, the admiration of humility comes entirely from Christian influence, entirely. So this virtue becomes a virtue, where before it was looked at as something to be avoided. 
because of Jesus, because of the teachings of Jesus and because of the way Jesus lived his life. Humility is how we receive everything we have from God. Humility is how we come to Jesus as people in need, saying we need your grace. That is a humble act, and that's how we begin a relationship with Jesus. That's how we grow in our relationship with him. Bernard of Clairvaux, a leader in the, uh, the ancient church, in the early days of the, of the church, um, he said, it is only when humility warrants it that great graces can be obtained. And so when you perceive that you are being humiliated, look on it as the sign of a sure guarantee that grace is on the way. Just as the heart is puffed up with pride before its destruction, so it is humiliated before being honored. It is the possession of a joyful and genuine humility that alone enables us to receive grace. Jesus calls us to humility. That's how we receive the grace that we need from him. And humility is not only the right thing to do, it's the wise thing to do. D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Isn't that great? If you're if you're in need, we come to Jesus with those needs and he meets those needs. And he doesn't send us away empty unless we're so full of ourselves to receive what we need from him. One more glimpse at this meal here. We're going to read verses 12 through 14. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's speaking to the host now of this meal. He says, when you give a, a feast like this, the, you know, the way these meals worked in ancient times was it was a very much a you scratch my back, I scratch yours kind of situation. You, if the people who were at these meals were the movers and the shakers. They were there to try to gain favors. They were trying to buy a piece of land, and they needed someone to grease the wheels of the bureaucracy or whatever. And so they're at these meals, and they're trying to get close to the host, and it's this whole jockeying for position, and I provide a meal for you, and then uh, later you'll provide a meal for me. And it was, this, it was a transactional situation. But Jesus says, when you give a dinner, don't, don't make it just all about your friends or the people that can reward you and pay you back. He says, when you give a meal, I want you to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And he says, and they won't be able to repay you. They will not be able to work in the system that you've developed. They can't repay you. But it's not that you won't receive payment. Oh, you'll be paid back. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's a temptation when we were generous to think about our, our generosity, any act of generosity, whether that's serving somebody or giving financially or giving of your time and to think of it in terms of being rewarded for it. Like I did all this and so I should be I thought of in a certain way or paid back in some way or you owe me or, or whatever it might be. But, but Jesus wants us to think about it with longer payment terms. That it's not just about this life and the way we are rewarded in the short term. He, he calls it in another place, storing up treasures in heaven. That when you give, we are storing up treasures in heaven. That there will be a day when your reward will come. And on that day, it will be 
so worth it. You will never regret a dollar given in the name of Jesus to meet a need or given towards the cause of Christ on that day. You will be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. Jesus' phrase he's using to describe the life after this one, the eternal life. There will come a day when your reward will come and it will be worth it. You will be rewarded. I think God sometimes rewards us in this life as far as like blessing us in some way for generosity, but ultimately our reward is in heaven for the things that we do, for the service that we offer, for the, for the generosity that we practice that he calls us to. And I think, I think on that day, it'll be, I mean, think about, Jesus, Jesus describes the, the life after this one, or the scripture describes the life after this one. This is our, our, our blessed hope, the return of Jesus Christ, that, that when thinking about the next life should motivate us in this life to live for him, to, to hold loosely onto the things that God's given us to manage during this time and to steward that we can be generous because there's a whole another life that's going to seem, that, that will be eternal and that every sacrifice made on this side of eternity is going to be so small in comparison to the reward that awaits us someday with him. There's, there's no comparison. Um, I, when I was just getting started as the lead pastor here at Life Roads, I um, my father-in-law was entering his last 18 months of life, and he was very ill, and we were preparing, anticipating for, for the end of his life to come. He had all these medical complications and things that were going on, and he was young. He was only 59 years old. But in, in 2009, I'm a brand new lead pastor. I'm 30 years old. I'm trying to learn how to be a pastor, and one of, my, one of the things that I needed to do was to care for my father-in-law and prepare him for eternity. And to, to, to meet with him, to pray with him, I would read scripture with him. And, you know, he was kind of home. Um, and, and, and we talked about this kind of stuff. We talked about actually specifically generosity. And I remember being so encouraged by the way that he had practiced generosity during his lifetime. But it was one of the things that gave him assurance at the end of his life. That, that he really did believe this. He believed this enough to practice generosity in extravagant ways. And when he thought about meeting his Savior in the short term, this was something that gave him encouragement, just that the way that he had lived this out, that he had been a generous person. And it helped, him, it helped comfort him at the end of his life. We think about these three kind of characteristics, these three things, these virtues, these things that, that God calls his followers, Jesus calls his followers to practice. Compassion, humility, and generosity. He showed great compassion by healing this man, even though it was the Sabbath day. He talked about the importance of humility, and then he talked about generosity here at the end, and, and, and giving to those who can't repay, knowing that you'll be repaid someday in eternity. Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of each of these things. Compassion, humility, generosity. Jesus is our true Sabbath rest. He's the one who enabled us to have rest. We could cease striving because Jesus provided rest through his salvation on the cross. He practiced incredible compassion all throughout his ministry and his, his great compassion towards us who needed his salvation, who were in a situation where we couldn't do anything to, to save ourselves from our sins. We needed an, a gift from him, and he gave us that gift on the cross. Jesus practiced great humility He's the ultimate model and example of what humility looks like. He's the one who created that as a virtue and raised that to 
the level of something that, that Christians have tried to practice since his ministry. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He took this humble servant approach to the people that he encountered. Uh, in the book of Philippians, the letter to, from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, he talks about humility. He says, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that Jesus, even though he's God, he humbled himself and continued humbling himself, even to the point of death on a cross. And because of that, Christ is exalted now and given the name which is above every name. He humbled himself and he was, of course, exalted. He was incredibly generous, right? There's never been anyone more generous than Jesus. You will never outgive Jesus. What Jesus has given you, you will never be able to repay. Jesus gave the most extravagant gift ever. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 talks about, it says that, it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Talking about what Jesus has provided for us through his, his gift on the cross. Now, I, I've been talking about how Jesus is our model for all of these things. He's, he's the ultimate example of humility, ultimate example of compassion, ultimate example of, of generosity. And that's a certain level of comfort to see a model that is, is modeling something for us. And we go, that's great, I want to be like that. That person's a great example. But the good news is, he's not just our model, he's the one who empowers us to live that way as well. We, he invites us into a relationship with him where we walk through this life daily with him. And he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we might be filled with a spirit that bears fruit, that produces these kinds of good things like compassion, humility, and generosity in our lives. It's a, it's a gift from him. It is him living his life through us. He is not just the model, he is the empowerer as well. That's a hard word to say and it's because I made it up. He's the one that helps us with that. As we remain rooted in him, he lives his life through us. Let's ask him for his help with that right now. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for yet another example of our amazing Savior, Lord, your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for many. And Lord, we've been learning from this meal, this encounter that Jesus had with this Pharisee and all the lessons that he had to, to speak just over the course of a meal. Um, I pray that you would help us to live out these practices, to live out these virtues that we've been studying together today. And Lord, we need to say to you that we need, um, we need your son to not only model for us how to live this way, but empower us to live this way as well. Lord, you've given us your spirit if we are your children Lord, if we're your followers, you've, you've poured out your spirit upon us, and we need that spirit to be at work in our lives and changing our lives from the inside out. And Lord, we need to acknowledge our complete dependence upon you. That Lord, the good things that come from our lives, they, they're there because of you and what you've done, and they won't be there if you weren't there. And so, Lord, I pray that you would empower us and help us. May we walk through this life in such a close relationship with you that it affects the everyday decisions we make, who we show compassion towards, whether or not we practice humility, and whether or not we are people who practice generosity. Lord, help us with this. We need your help. We need you to be not just the model, but also the one that empowers us to live this way. So, Father, help us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.